Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. It's time for another conversation on the Beeson Podcast today, and I'm so glad to welcome back. This is the second time we've had our conversation with Dr. Bruce Winter. He's a great friend of our school. He's been here a number of times over the years and uh, is here now actually giving our biblical studies lectures on pastoral application from 1 Corinthians. Just terrific. Welcome, Bruce, back to Beeson and to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Timothy. It's my home, uh, and I love being here. I must say it's always a, a homecoming for me to teach. Now, I'm not going to spend much time introducing you. We, we did a conversation, but I want to give folks a sense of kind of your your place in the world of scholarship. And I don't do this in any way to puff you up as though you needed puffing up. But so folks will know that we are speaking today to a world-class scholar of New Testament studies and early Christian origins. He is a native of Australia, uh, holds degrees from the University of Queensland, um, Moore Theological College in Sydney, the Southeast Asia Graduate School of Theology, and a Ph.D. from Macquarie University, also in Sydney. Uh, he's published so many books. He's led in many different consortia and symposia related to the New Testament and early Christian beginnings. Uh, among uh, his most interesting books is one called Roman Wives, Roman Widows, The Appearance of New Women and the Pauline Community, and also Seek the Welfare of the City, Christians as Benefactors and Citizens. For nearly 20 years, uh, Dr. Bruce Winter was the warden of Tyndale House in Cambridge, England. That's a remarkable research institute that's also a lively community of Christian discourse and learning, founded, I think, uh, Bruce, by F.F. Uh, F. Bruce back around the time of World War II. And it's grown into just a major uh, institution for outreach and Christian scholarship. And that's what we want to talk about today, Christian scholarship. Let me begin by asking, is there a difference between being a student and a scholar? And if so, what are the characteristics of a scholar? Well, I think the student is uh, a studio of someone who is interested in learning. And so that is a student who has a thirst for knowledge and for a Christian student, of course, is thirst for the knowledge of God. In regard to a scholar, it comes from the, the Greek word scholar, which really means a community of people who discuss things together. And so I suppose there is this difference, or there's certainly the similar characteristic that's similar to both, is the question of interest in, in discovery and things like this. And the scholar is someone who is... But we have a, a, the scholar of Tyrannus in uh, mm. Ephesus. And that's not a school, but it's a group of people who gather together to engage in discussion with other scholars. So every Christian should be a student, a learner, someone who is eager to learn the things of God and uh, seeking toward a scholarly competence, although there may be some people who have a special calling to give their lives in uh, Christian scholarship. Well, I think someone who is a Christian scholar is someone who has been set apart or is teaching. Uh, he's teaching students what he's discovered from the mind of God that's revealed in the Word of God. And he is all the time thinking about the implications of knowledge, 
of the context and what God is really saying and wants to do it for the church because all scholarship has to benefit the church. It's not something independent enterprise in itself, just for the academy. Now, when you were a warden at uh, Tyndall House and I had occasion to be with you on various times, uh, you had a strong emphasis that this is not merely an academic center for the study of religious texts from the ancient world. Uh, There was no compromise on scholarly competence and uh, academic rigor. But there was, you brought, a, I would call it a pastoral sensitivity. You, you wanted to have that place devoted to research also be a living Christian community of prayer, of worship, of Christian fellowship. Talk about that. Well, there are some uh, scholarly institutions where I say there's been a biological regression where people turn from frogs into tadpoles. Mm-hmm. So in effect, they become all head and nothing else. Whereas in a Christian context, you want it to be that people are growing in the knowledge of God. They are developing. They're developing their own character. They're developing their own godliness. Because the scholars who really cut ice are the people who who live in the house about which they teach. In other words, it's for the purpose of the church. So I always felt the dictum that if it's not going to benefit the church, don't do it. And secondly, uh, that... You, we've all been given gifts that are requisite for the, the area of work that God has called us to do. So we don't classify people. Every Christian's been given the right gifts for the task of scholarship. So no one can be boastful. No one can talk about them being a better scholar than others. Uh, that is a very pagan way of approaching the issue of scholarship. And I think the other thing about a characteristic is that basically we're not discovering it. In our research, God is revealing to us things that he himself has said. Now, scholars uh, today live, I think, on the – Christian scholars live on the border, the boundary of the church and also the academy, which increasingly in certainly uh, our Western world, our modern Western world, is detached from the church and even hostile to the church. And yet there's a sense in which we published our scholarly works and it's read by those who are out of the church as well as some who are in the church. Talk about the tension or how does one develop a sensitivity uh, to both in a way um, speak to these two different worlds, competing worlds some, sometimes. Well, Tertullian, who was a second century person, said, what has the academy to do with the church? Where is there any likeness? between Athens and Jerusalem. So that was a tension that was felt in the second century by a leading apologist. And he also said, where is there any likeness between the students of the academy and the disciples of heaven? Mm. And so you can see that that was a tension in, in, even in the ancient world. <clears throat> I think the business about, uh, about the, the purpose of biblical scholarship that is really can be a blessing to others, and that is that God is so profound, his mind is so unsearchable in many ways, that we keep discovering new things. And we want to share that for the purpose of blessing God's people. So if it doesn't benefit the church, don't do it. That's my concept. On the other hand, we want to be able to sort of produce a scholarship in a world where people may be derogatory or or deriding scripture and we want to show the integrity of scripture we also want to do it and i think in such a way that the setting 
helps to illuminate the context of our interpretation because often interpretations have been put forward that are simply a recycling of the present culture and making judgments but not necessarily the first century context and this is why I did my work in the Department of Ancient History so that we could gather together other texts that might actually throw more light on this first century text of the New Testament. Now you're you're a scholar, you've been a professor, you understand what we sometimes call the the pressure to publish or perish in the academy. Especially I think younger scholars uh, feel this. They've got to get so many books out to get tenure, to be advanced in their career and their profession. Uh, that's almost a driving force, I think, in the academy today. Uh, could you say a little bit about that kind of pressure and how a younger Christian scholar, or really any anyone in, in the academy, should uh, think about it and, and deal with it? I sometimes look at the forests that have died in vain from the books that have been published mm. that basically uh, are simply either rearranging the pieces in a museum case and giving the impression this is something new. In regard to the younger person who's, uh, who's now finished perhaps their doctoral studies, often a PhD will suggest other areas that have not been explored that could be beneficial. And so my advice, I don't think it's publish or perish, I think it's contribute to the body of knowledge that adds to it. That was the advice that Sir Fred Catherwood gave me to me when I first went to Tyndall House, add to the body of knowledge. So if we can't do that, then I think we have to sort of uh, stand back from that and focus on our teaching, which, of course, we are there for the students and to teach them to be able to read the word. Uh, but And even in teaching students, sometimes things will come to us that we hadn't seen before. And so if it, if it is something that adds, then my view is to, is to publish that which adds. And then I also think that people's PhD topics are often a giveaway as to whether or not they're really producing something that is is beneficial uh, and that is an addition rather than just simply recycling. So I think, and we need to pray as scholars, that the Lord will give us some further insight because at the end of the day we are all accountable to our Heavenly Father for what we do and what we teach. And so scholarly reputations don't matter I'd say to students doing a PhD, well, there's going to be a final viva in heaven. <laughs> so write for the coach and not for the crowd. <clears throat> yeah. And also, just in regard to our own publishing, that what we do will ultimately, does it honour Christ? Does it throw new light on God's word? And uh, even there's some pressure for us people, to, for people to be publishing. Sometimes people do it at the expense of actually focusing on their primary task, which is to be facilitate students and to help them prepare for ministry in the future. You just used a word, a Latin word, that may not be familiar to all of our uh, listeners, viva. Uh, you're talking yeah. about a academic tradition. Tell us what a viva well, is. Well, a viva is when you have written your dissertation and you are then, what happens in the English system is, and, and other systems as well, that you have to defend your dissertation in front of others. Originally, you had to defend in Latin. That's long past since uh, Cambridge stopped lecturing in Latin, as the English universities used to. But the intention was that people would read it and then they would cross-question you. And you had to defend your proposals in your thesis. And uh, if you couldn't defend them, then, of course, you didn't get through. 
But if you did defend them, and then that was the opportunity you had to, uh, they would award you with the, the appropriate degree. So you're telling us there's a viva to come, the judgment seat of Christ, maybe. We could talk about it in New Testament language. But there's an utter accountability before God that we should keep in mind, and not just approval by our academic supervisor or the wider uh, reading public of academic uh, material. I want to focus just a little bit on the tension that some students feel. Some of our students here at Beeson, every semester it seems, especially first semester students, seem to have a desire to come and talk to me. And the number one question on their minds is, Dr. George, could you tell me how to get a Ph.D.? How you went to Harvard Divinity School and you did a doctoral program and you became a teacher and a scholar, tell me how I can do that. And for the students who come with that kind of exuberant question, I have a ministry of discouragement. Good. And I basically say to them, you know, yes, the Lord calls people like me. We're kind of in the supply lines. But what God really needs are people on the front lines, pastors, missionaries, evangelists, witnesses. Say a little bit, though, about how a student, maybe with a good taste now of theological learning and education, might discern whether going on to advanced graduate doctoral work is something they ought to pursue or not. Well, I think my number one question is, do you love preaching God's Word? Because we don't want people who are just simply going to give people more information. That, to me, is a a critical issue in regard to people who want to do this. And then I say to people, Jesus said, call no man doctor, because the word in Matthew 23 is kathagates, means doctor or professor in modern Greek, and it also has this connotation. So it's, it's not simply that you, know, that you can get some title that gives you that. In fact, I remember one time here when the doctor of ministry students were there and someone read a poem about uh, call me doctor. And once I was humble, now I'm proud, walking ahead with the doctor crowd, Brother, I tell you, I've never been the same since I had a doctor to my name. And as a result of hearing that, I made some adjustments to it for people doing PhDs. And I would always hand this to a student who'd finished his PhD in Cambridge as my farewell gift. Uh, because, you know, there, there is this sense in which people feel, well, a title. Whereas I don't like to be given a title. I prefer, because we're all brothers, I to be, prefer to be called by my given name as Brother Bruce. Because I just feel this... Uh, takes away from the issue that somehow because I have a title that is important. Now I think if a person does a piece of doctoral studies and a PhD, whatever, after their name <clears throat> it's a signal of the fact that they've passed through the rigorous process mm-hmm. and that's, that's important but the, the issue is that people wanting to do that is somehow to get into the academy and there are people who, who don't love the ministry of the church and yet they want to train people how to love ministry in the church And so I wouldn't want to have any faculty member who didn't really love the ministry and wanted to preach because I think that sort of shows that this dichotomy between the academy and the church, which really for Christian scholarship just shouldn't be there. You know, what we're saying is that academic work, scholarship, should be in the service of the church for one who is a believer committed to Jesus Christ. And uh, that ought to be, uh, along with God himself, our primary audience. Uh, let me let me focus the conversation for just a few minutes on a contemporary concern for all of us in the world of uh, theological education and learning and uh, really living today, and that is technology. Research, as you know well, can increasingly be done online without uh, setting a foot in a library. Um, 
You can search whole bodies of material without ever reading a text. Uh, and there are many advances uh, that have been made. There's no doubt about this. Through the uh, beginning of the Internet and the, the rise of computerism, if we can call it that, in our culture today, we can't turn the clock back, uh, nor should we try to. But for all of the advances, there may be also some drawbacks, some reservations. Maybe we should have some reticence. I wonder if you talk about both sides of that, how technology can be used in a good and helpful way in scholarly work, and maybe what, if you think there are, uh, some uh, concerns to have about it. Well, I mean, I'm very grateful to the thesaurus linguae Greco because it has now the whole of the Greek corpus, which is online. It also has a vast amount of details of inscriptions and papyri, and we've never had that before. Mm. And I was very grateful to Dr. Packard when they produced their machine to do this, that we could get a, one of the three in England at Tyndale House. And so there is an advantage in being able, because some of these inscriptions and others are completely inaccessible, except in very specialised libraries and, and few of them around the world. So we are greatly blessed by having access to that information, but it's a case of what we do with it that's the important thing. And being able to get that access and to look at that. But we have to process that information. I remember when the TLG first came through that everyone was writing articles about this word occurs 450 times and point is so what? Mm -hmm. So there was this business of being um, mesmerized by this machine. But what we want to do is to find the same context that this text is referring to, the same setting as we're dealing in the passage in the New Testament that may be of some help to us. So there is a, is a blessing, but also there is this, this business that we haven't really processed the information. We're just demonstrating the ability. And, of course, there can be a fair bit of plagiarizing as well. And it's very inappropriate not to acknowledge either verbally what someone has helped you to and, and clues someone's given you or not to acknowledge what's been written and somehow claiming it as your own. So there is the question of an ethical issue that comes out at this point. So I, I find I'm greatly blessed to have the TLG and one or two other things because it gives a very quick move through, but then I have to process the details that are there and show how it's going to benefit and help to illuminate the text of the Word of God, rather than just simply, um, you know, just giving some indication of what this word meant, but without being discerning that this word has to mean something in one context, but can mean something in another semantic domain. So there's a bit the need to be very careful at that point. I have made a comparison between uh, the invention of printing in the 16th century and the rise of the Internet and the computer in our age. Both were tremendous information communication breakthroughs. Uh, just imagine uh, the time it would take and did take for monks in scriptoria to write line by line, letter by letter, a copy of the Bible, sometimes well over a year. Now with the printing press, Gutenberg, you know, this can be done almost like a, a ditto device, magically, in numerous copies. And there's a tremendous advance in getting the Word of God into the hands of the people. But also, I think there is some losses, even with printing, just as there are with the computer. For example, people read books aloud 
up until the time of the Reformation. It was very unusual that you'd just be alone in the corner reading silently to yourself. And I think there's something about uh, the orality of the Word of God, hearing it. Paul talks about the public reading of the Scriptures that tends to have become sidelined because of this wonderful advance in the technology of printing. And I think some of the same kind of things are going on today. Well, I would agree with that. I remember we had a mission in Cambridge, and we had someone who was able to recite the whole of John's Gospel. He recited, I think, not quite the whole lot, one evening. And the more he repeated this, he knew it by heart, the more he sort of read on and on, the more dramatic effect this had on people. You felt Mm. the silence coming into the situation. Mm. And so that's why in church we don't want people who can't read the scriptures, but who really can read them and give the right emphasis. And then it has a spellbound effect on the members of the congregation. So there is something about orality. I still remember in the university church, the Great St. Mary's in Cambridge, of hearing this person read. And we had a question time afterwards. I was on the panel. And it was interesting the questions people raised because they had the big picture. And to me, that's the important thing. I do something not quite like that, but I can do a course on on a Saturday of four sessions where we go through the whole of the Epistle of the Hebrews and people got the text in front of them. In that case, they can we read it as we go along and we highlight and do things like that. So there is a positive thing about this whole question yeah. of being able to hear the text read because when these letters were sent to the churches in the first century, they would be read out aloud. Now, there was, a, of course, a high degree of literacy, but it was read out to the whole church. And I think we, uh, we could recapture something because the more you go on, the more hushed your heart becomes, I think, as you listen to that reading. So maybe the bottom line is we ought to take advantage of every blessing and gift that God has given to us to study and learn and dig deeply into the scriptures, the context of Revelation, but at the same time do it wisely, do it with discernment and in a way that aims to edify the building up of the body of Christ. Well, that's the intention, isn't it, that the the preacher in Ephesians 4 has been given gifts so he can equip the... Um, people for their work of service and the people of God can build up together the body of Christ so there's a real role for the pastoring and teaching of people but it's to be from the word yeah a little earlier in our conversation we're almost out of time but I I want to ask you this question to reflect on it you mentioned prayer prayer is an important ingredient in the development of Christian scholarship could you say a little bit more about that I'm reminded of you know Karl Barth's line and many other people have used it as well that we should pray always uh, with two windows open, the window looking out at the world, study the Bible with a window looking out at the world, but also with a skylight, with our heart attuned to, to heaven above. So uh, the life of faith and the life of prayer, how do they intersect with scholarship? If you could say a word about that in your own life and then maybe a counsel for all of us who are listening. Well, I think there is a great temptation to uh, simply be so switched on that we feel it's all up to us. And that shows a very sad paradigm shift. We get to that point of becoming professional scholars and we're just simply recycling things. And I think to me the number one thing is that, I mean, it's remarkable that I moved into the world that I did in Cambridge. I'd been a minister of a church and I love being able to preach the word on a Sunday. Uh, But I moved into that sort of ministry and I realized how much that I need to pray before I began my work 
that the Lord would help guide and direct me in my thinking. And so it is possible, for, as I said, for people to end up as tadpoles with no real heart in terms of just being a head and a tail that wags around, waggles around. And, and therefore the issue, I think, of prayer and of sharing together with others, and this was one of the pluses of Tyndall House because people would come out and talk about their dissertations. We'd have senior scholars there. It's a lot of good interaction. But at the end of the day... Paul says knowledge can puff up and I once said to a student who was so puffed up I'm sorry we can't make the doors of Tyndall House Library wide enough to get you through <laughs> now that you've got this sort of swollen head <laughs> which was about as subtle as a train crash to say that to him but anyway I did say it because it worried me about people sort of indicating just how feeling of how important they were so it is possible to shrivel the soul as to well as, as to uh, produce things in the, in the world of scholarship and so we need to pray that the whole the Spirit has been given to us because the words to be written will also help us to grow in our hearts as well as our head as we do scholarship. And if that is the case, then I think that students will have a paradigm in, as they're being taught because they know that the person's saying this not because they're being paid to, but they're saying it because they believe it. And to me, that is the bottom line of all good scholarship. It must bless the church and in our teaching situation we don't want people to be followers of us but we want them to be imitators of our love for the word the takeaway i think from this conversation is knowledge puffs up but love builds up amen and don't be a tadpole that's right <laughs> my guest has been dr bruce w winter he is an outstanding scholar of new testament early christian origins a research professor and the director of the Institute for Early Christianity at Queensland Theological College in Australia. Thank you so much for this conversation, Bruce. Yes, and just remember, Paul says, what do you have that you've not received? Then why do you boast as if it originates from you? And I think we've got to be very careful that we acknowledge the giver. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.